When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, following the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. Welcome once again to Strange Planet. And uh, to paraphrase the late, great Olivia Newton-John, let's get metaphysical. And we're going to do that with an outstanding writer. You may remember him from Occult America. Mitch Horowitz is back with a brand new one. It's called Uncertain Places, Essays on Occult and Outsider Experiences. Mitch was raised in a world of Bigfoot stories, UFO sightings, and Carlos Castaneda books. He grew determined to find the truth behind it all. And today, Mitch is a Penn Award-winning historian and the author of books including Occult America, One Simple Idea, How Positive Thinking Reshaped Modern Life, and Mind as Builder, The Positive Mind Metaphysics of Edgar Cayce. Mitch has written on everything from the war on witches to the secret life of Ronald Reagan for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Salon, and Politico. The Washington Post says Mitch treats esoteric ideas and movements with an even-handed intellectual studiousness that is too often lost in today's raised voice discussion. He's the voice of popular audiobooks, including Alcoholics Anonymous. A longtime publishing executive, Mitch has published authors living and dead, including David Lynch and Manley P. Hall. Hey, Mitch, welcome to the program. How are you? Thank you, man. Good to see you. All good here in Brooklyn. Rainy, wet. Same here. Same. Nice and dry inside the little mesmeric studios. (laughs) I am am mesmerized. Uh, I know you're you're an admirer of Charles Fort, but you say you're not a Fortian, uh, and yet you believe in leprechauns and little people. Explain yourself, Mitch. (laughs) Uh, I haven't spent a great deal of time studying uh, cryptids, uh, anomalous phenomena as such, so I don't describe myself as a Fortian because I see that as somebody who dedicates him or herself hardcore to the study of anomalous phenomena. I report and talk about those experiences uh, when they cross my path. Uh, I report them when they reach the public consciousness, but my primary focus is in metaphysics or the extraphysical. Although in fairness, I think those two worlds uh, do coincide, those conversations coincide, which is you know part of why I'm here. Now, do you refer to the, uh, the leprechauns as leprechauns or are you now referring to them as the other crowd? Ah, that's a good question. Now, traditional-minded folk in Ireland shy away from using the term leprechauns. They shy away from talking about the so-called little people because, of course, the notion is that if you talk about these mischievous beings, they might appear and something strange might happen to you. So it's interesting. Every culture across human history, from Polynesia to Siberia, literally, throughout all of time, has had stories of mysterious little men. You find it in Eastern, Western Europe. You find it throughout the African continent. 
throughout the South Pacific, throughout Polynesia. I always get super interested when there appear these parallel insights, including in what we call mythology or folklore, but that occur across all different time barriers, languages, customs. Hence, my interest in the little people, which is usually the name that I use, but of course, every culture has its own term. Did you come across any in Belize? <laughs> well, I had a strange story that I tell in the book. Um, we were staying at one of these uh, eco lodges uh, way up in the hills, and there was a taxi driver who was taking us from uh, the airport to this eco lodge, about a two and a half hour drive. We had to go up to the, this very rocky, uh, twisting, winding road of the mountain, and the driver said to us, the moment I drop you guys off, I'm turning the car around and I'm getting out of here. And I said, why? And he said, there are these little men who live in the hills. And when you encounter them, you'll be so frightened that your voice will just freeze in your throat. You'll strain for words. You won't be able to say anything. And the next day, we were canoeing down this snaking river through um, a ravine. And I started saying, uh, you know, I was unhappy with that cab driver yesterday because I thought he was just playing scare the tourists. And I didn't like that guy trying to get one over on us. And the place was just deadly quiet. No birds, no crickets, no nothing. And as I was talking about this, a boulder rolled down from a wall of the ravine and crashed in the water about 12 feet in front of us. So I thought I better shut up. But it was interesting because the Belize is an English-speaking nation, mm -hmm. and the driver's choice of words was very careful. He made a strict point of telling me that your voice will freeze in your throat. And this past weekend, I was at an experiencers conference for people who uh, have encountered UFOs, and there was a woman from Arizona, from Phoenix, who had witnessed the Phoenix Lights. And without my having referenced this story, she used remarkably similar language to the taxi driver saying when she saw the Phoenix lights as a teen, her and her mom and dad were situated in their backyard and they couldn't talk. Their voices just froze in their throats. And she used remarkably similar language to the cab driver, which I didn't mention to her, but I was struck by. Well, speaking of UFOs, um, you, you write that in the book that um, we seem to be kind of on living in a moment right now where we're on the precipice of kind of I don't know, breaking on through to quote Jim Morrison or like yeah. a new, uh, finally a new level of understanding. And I was talking, having this conversation last night with um, someone in, in the world of ufology talking about that New York times article in December of 2017 with Leslie Kane and how it seemed like, you know, there was some real traction in that regard uh, in terms of, you know, finally like a sea change in the way that the media was treating this subject. that wasn't about little green men and ha 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 right. more. So was it December 20, uh, 2017 for you or, or when did it happen? I guess for me, it probably happened um, maybe about 18 months later. I was here in New York City and there was a panel on UFOs at the Guggenheim Museum, not known as a fount of occult <laughs> passions. And it was a very good panel. And uh, the curator of the panel who had gotten a lot of clout at the museum recent to that time because he put up an exhibit of paintings by Hilma Afklimt, who was very influenced by Madame Blavatsky and Theosophy. And the exhibit was a big success, both critically, commercially, with the public. So he had gotten some serious stock there. And he used that stock, in my estimation, very wisely and said, all right, 
Speaking of break on through, now I want to have a panel on flying saucers. He did so. It was packed. Uh, I mean, people were lining the walls of this beautiful Art Deco auditorium that had been designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. And afterwards, he approached me and said, look, at what point do you think it's going to become intellectually embarrassing in our culture to dismiss the UFO question as swamp gas, little green men, somebody imagining things? a fly on the lens or something of that nature. And I thought for a moment and I said, you know, in all frankness, right now, right at this instant, there had been another a series of articles produced by that same team uh, in the Times uh, right around that that period. That's uh, Leslie Keene, Ralph Blumenthal and Helene Cooper. Uh, and both Ralph and Leslie were at that conference this past weekend. And I realized that there has been such a cultural change from even five years ago, where all that swamp gas stuff was still uh, the the common language within the mainstream media for dismissing or talking about the UFO thesis. And that's gone. That's vanished. Now, we're going to see pushback. And we saw some of that pushback a few weeks ago with an article in The Times by Julian Barnes, uh, previewing the report that we're all still waiting for that mm -hmm. the DOD is supposed to be releasing. I refer to Julian's article as the empire strikes back. You know, this was the the the, the rejectionist thesis uh, uh, staking its claim, saying, well, you know, it's all space junk, misunderstanding, Chinese drones, none of which in my estimation holds up at all. It's, it's rhetoric, you know, to a great extent. Right. And so we're going to see this back and forth, but the genie is out of the bottle. And there is simply no way that any serious person can function with real gravity in our culture and fall back on the old 1970s dismissals. It doesn't work right. anymore. Right. So that that um, column, I guess, was maybe the last gasp of a dying paradigm. Although I think you talk about another New York Times columnist. Is it Dufat? Oh, yeah. Ross Dufat. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And he actually tried to use... Uh, Jacques Vallée's own argument about, you know, the, the the vast expanse of the universe would preclude extraterrestrials. But then he came around. Tell me about that. Well, it was very interesting. And, and Ross is actually a perfect uh, example of what we're discussing. Uh, several years ago, Ross wrote an article that was headlined. Now, in fairness, he didn't write the headline, but the headline still reflected his point of view. Something about Harry Potter, UFOs and other fairy tales or something of that nature. And he has since changed his tune on that. And I want to note that very carefully because, you know, the New York Times is a bellwether of mainstream media opinion. It has remained so. And Ross, although he's an opinion columnist, represents that kind of, I mean, you know, he classifies himself as a political conservative, but he does represent that sort of what I, what I like to call the NPR tote bag point of view. Forgive me if your Canadian listeners are unfamiliar with NPR, but Oh you've no, got, we know it. You've got the you've got the equivalent north of the border. You know that that kind of materialist, um, certaintist, rejectionist point of view that says, "Oh no, you know this is this is all just nonsense and fairy dust and such." And he has changed. He has changed. And uh, just another thing, if I may share. Um, also, gosh, it was maybe about two years ago. There was a piece in the New Yorker magazine, another kind of bellwether, I would say, of mainline materialist point of view, at least as far as big media is concerned. And, and this was a long, expansive piece about some of the most prominent UFO uh, advocates and some of the most prominent UFO rejectionists. 
And the reporter did something that I had never seen done before in mainstream media, which is that he put an x-ray up to the advocates. Okay, fair enough. And he put an x-ray up to the rejectionists. And he made specific mention of the fact that the rejectionists have certain greatest hits that are kind of getting old, phraseology, verbal tricks, uh, methods by which they try to convince their interlocutor of something. And it was the first time I had seen the advocates and the rejectionists side by side, both being treated to the same uh, critical um, study or analysis. And of course, as you and many of your listeners have known for years, the rejectionists have their own bag of tricks mm -hmm. and their own uh, tactics and so forth, which I think are getting awfully musty. And the reporter made reference to that. And it was the first time I had seen a reporter from the mainstream media do that. So there is change afoot. Right. Imagine that, like actual journalism. <laughs> right. Right. And apply the same standard to both, you know, advocacy and rejectionism. And let's see how we come down, you know. Um, so I don't know if the UFO, if we want to, you know, um, kind of blurring the lines here between ufology and metaphysical things, but it seems to be part of this, you call it, I think we're entering the third wave, like an occult, a third wave of, a, of the occult revival. Is, would That's that my perception. And, and I really resisted speaking in those terms for a long time because we had this late 19th century occult revival here in the West. And then I would say with the advent of the Woodstock generation, there was another occult revival, chiefly because people of that era were overturning traditions everywhere you looked, whether in questions of religion or politics or what have you. And the occult has been an evergreen on the Western scene for so long. I really resist talking in terms of an occult revival, but with the mainstreaming of the UFO thesis, I believe we're seeing that because hand in hand with the UFO thesis comes the question of interdimensionality. Uh, you were sort of alluding to that earlier when you mentioned uh, Jacques Vallée, and he was quoted in this column in the Times for talking about the unfathomable distances that ET objects would have to travel, but the columnist omitted the fact that Jacques is one of the pioneers of the interdimensional thesis, which is something I'm partial to. Yeah. And it. yeah, and and I've always described the occult as belief in an extra physical dimension of life whose impacts can be felt on and through us. And if I'm partial to the interdimensional thesis for UFOs, that starts to converge the conversations between ufology and the occult. And these are all just words anyway. You know, I use the term occult because I think it has a certain historical integrity. But if we're talking about extra physicality, extra dimensionality and so forth, um, these conversations are converging. So hence, with the mainstreaming of the UFO thesis, I think there is a new occult revival. And we'll see how that looks. My hope is that it will produce a greater funding for uh, e academic ESP research, for example, a field I care very deeply about, and we'll see what occurs. But I think that that's unfolding at this instant. I think you 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 talk in the book about you know perhaps this revival, if we can call it that, will lead to maybe uh, the reopening of of some of these parapsychology labs. Like there was, you, you talk about the one at Princeton. Uh, yeah. 
uh, Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab that was closed down, I guess, lack of funding. Is that what, what happened there? Well, the, the, the heads of the lab retired and the maintenance of funding, the constant struggle uh, not to allow the lab to be shuttered because of pushback from some of the more establishment forces on campus. It's just a battle that couldn't be fought forever. So with the retirement of the founders, unfortunately, the lab closed. But there are still people, excuse me, there are still people doing parapsychological research at Princeton, uh, as there are at Cornell. But the the great labs uh, at Princeton, uh, at Duke, um, other efforts have, have largely uh, closed down. So what you have is individual researchers who have to very frequently fundraise privately on their own, get grants wherever they can. And the, the research, of course, is very inexpensive. I mean, compared to what we as a society uh, spend on just standard psychology research, never mind uh, hard physics and such, uh, never mind even things that are directly uh, military related. The money that we spend on 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 ESP, it's peanuts. I mean, it's peanuts. You could practically put it on your your credit card, and and yet the funding atmosphere is very um, it's very narrow. And I want to see that change. We've lost a generation of progress because of that. Right. I mean, yeah. You don't need an electron microscope. You need you don't need a, a particle collider. You need a random number generator. So right. Tell me about the work they were doing with random number generators at places like Princeton. And there's a an amazing story you tell in here about what happened in the aftermath of 9-11. Yeah. Uh, there's a project at Princeton called the Global Consciousness Project, and it's ongoing. It was a project of the Pear Lab, but there are different ad hoc researchers at different universities who have maintained it. The, essentially, they placed random number generators at different locations around the world to determine whether there would be an interruption in the random output at moments of some sort of presumed heightened global emotional intensity, the chief example of which is 9-11. And <clears throat> I write about this some in my book, Daydream Believer. There were signals in the noise. There were interruptions in the random dispatch of, of infinite streams of numbers in the hours immediately preceding and following the events of 9-11. Other global events that are thought to be periods of prime emotional intensity have also demonstrated similar results, not as heavy a spike as 9-11, but the elections of Obama and Trump, which were also periods of high emotional reaction, it could be euphoria, could be disappointment, whatever it is, had the same impact in these uh, random number generators that were placed at different locales around the world. And I, I have notes in Daydream Believer, the stats are up online, they're mapped out on, on bar graphs, and it's fascinating material. Right, which leads us into a discussion about uh, mental causation, and uh, we'll get into that in just a moment. Mitch Horowitz is with us, his collection of essays, Uncertain Places, now available wherever good books are sold. Back to more of our conversation right after this. Truth will set you free, free, free. But first, it will really tick you off. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. 
And we're back with Mitch Horowitz, Uncertain Places, Essays on Occult and Outsider Experiences. So we were talking about the random number generators at uh, Princeton's uh, research lab here and um, how after this traumatic event, obviously 9-11, they noticed, I think you called it signals in the noise. So it's, imagine, I guess, random, just random numbers. And then all of a sudden we might see repeating numbers or patterns. So exactly. All of exactly. A a signal there. And the idea that I guess through this mass trauma and a unified mind or unified consciousness, uh, somehow that was being reflected in this random generator. So leading into a discussion of um, um, mental causation. So, I mean, let's, how do we, uh, how do we unpack that? Um, you talk about neuroplasticity, neuroplasticity mm -hmm. in, in the book. And um, uh, what, what does that have to do with mental causation? Neuroplasticity is a great example in some respects because it is a field that is so lacking in controversy. No one challenges its data. The, the, the challenge is over the implications of the data. In short, neuroplasticity is a fairly young uh, field in the psychological sciences where brain scans are used to demonstrate that your sustained thoughts will eventually alter the neural pathways through which electrical impulses travel in your brain. So for example, if an, if an individual maybe is suffering from OCD or the symptoms of some sort of ritualistic behavior, the gambit of uh, neuroplasticity is that if that individual can redirect his or her thoughts at such moments where they feel impelled towards a repeat behavior to something else, let's say something that's pleasurable, that takes their mind away from that ritualistic behavior, over a period of certain weeks, it will actually alter the, the neural pathways through which electrical impulses travel in their brain. The brain is altered at the cellular level by sustained thoughts. We, as a human community, don't even know what a thought is. We use these terms all the time. Artificial intelligence, consciousness, thought. We don't even have a consensus-based definition of precisely what this is. But most of us grew up with the perspective that thought, whatever that is, is an epiphenomenon of the brain, almost like bubbles in a glass of carbonated water. And when the water is gone, the bubbles are gone, and that's that, and that's the whole story of, of the human apparatus. But what we're seeing in neuroplasticity turns that entirely on its head, because your thoughts are actually affecting the matter of your brain. And one of the founders of the field, a psychologist, a research psychologist at UCLA named Jeffrey Schwartz, describes it as literal mind over matter. And I feel such respect for him because he speaks so plainly and bluntly about the data. And he points out that, and this data is uncontroversial. No one challenges it. The extraordinary vista that lay before us is in the implications of the data. A law, in order to be such, has to be consistent. So in this case, we're seeing what we call thought actually alter the body. This is something that goes even beyond the most extraordinary research into the placebo response, which is remarkable on its own count. But here we're seeing that just thought itself of any nature is capable of altering neural pathways. And 
it begs extraordinary questions, but it takes the phrase mind over matter uh, out of the realm of fiction. This is something that we're witnessing. We just haven't figured out a way to digest it yet as a human community. Um, what was the uh, the book, um, The Secret, that came out about yeah. what, 15, 15 years ago, maybe more? Yeah, good ways, about 2006, yeah. Right, so this idea that uh, we can manifest our destiny. And, you know, you've written about the, the power of positive thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's just explore that a little bit, how this neuroplasticity and the idea of um, uh, creating our own, well, thoughts, creating neuropathways, affecting the physical body, and how that can ultimately lead to, I don't know, manifesting yeah, Man manifestation. <clears throat> the term I I favor is selecting, um, and I speak in terms of, and I'm going to compress this down to about the size of a marble, just to be respectful of our time. But I speak about the possibility of the psyche being able to travel among different intersections of time. There may be an interdimensional quality to the psyche, and and it's controlled by our perceptions, our emotionally driven perceptions we may be experiencing at every instant uh, a, a renewed sense of so-called past, present, future. And I say so-called because we know going back to the age of Einstein that linear time itself is conditional. Linear time itself does not behave under certain extreme conditions like uh, conditions of extreme velocity or extreme gravity. And <clears throat> the gambit is whether the mind, which is in a sense, or let's say, forget the mind, let's say the senses themselves, which are tools of measurement, tools of biologic measurement. We touch, we smell, we taste, we sense perspective and so forth. Whether perspective itself uh, localizes in a certain sense, whether we are moving among an infinitude of different actualities, um, the term sometimes used in physics is the the many worlds the thesis, which is a, a a theory of interpreting quantum data. Whether the same thing is happening in the mind, and it's not a huge reach in the sense that we just talked about neuroplasticity and and what we call thought affecting our experience of matter, quite literally and measurably. We see this emergent from academic uh, psychical research, apropos of what we were just describing about the Global Consciousness Project, and there's so much more, and some of it quite recent and very exciting, involving questions of precognition, retrocausality. So is the mind a tool of selection? That's the wager that I'm working with right now. And I get very attached to laboratory data sometimes, probably has something to do with my upbringing, but I'm also very interested in individual experiment, which we have to honor as well, in the same way that we honor the experience of witnesses and experiencers with respect to the UFO phenomenon. Um, there is a very important dimension to testimony forming its own record in, in terms of our ability to trace out reality. So we have things that are coming out of the hard sciences. We have laboratory data that's enormously enticing and I think validating. And we also have our own experiences. So I care very deeply about the individual experimenting with some of these prospects, him or herself. Um, I part ways with the secret to the extent that I don't 
like to use the term law of attraction because it connotes the notion that we all live under this one mental super law. And while consciousness may be the ultimate arbiter of reality, there are a lot of intervening laws and forces. There are a lot of intervening things that we experience as with any natural law. Water is always H2O, but it's going to be a solid, a liquid, or a, a vapor depending upon surrounding circumstances. So I don't see why a law, if there is one, of mental causation should be different. We are we are bound to suffer intervening laws and forces within this, this sphere that we occupy. Our bodies decay. We die. There's no exception to that. One, one could argue that, and I, I'm, I'm down for that. But in terms of commonly observed experience, that's overwhelming. And, and yet, and yet, we have this extraordinary evidence, both in terms of individual testimony and the sciences, that there is, there is a perceptual quality uh, to how we interplay with reality. Perceptual and concretizing, perceptual and actual and localizing. So my um, current experiment, I suppose you could say, is considering uh, the circumstances under which that may work for the individual uh, concretizing realities in, in, in his or her experience. I want to ask you, you know, why some perceive and some don't, or why some select, perhaps, uh, and some don't. When we come back, Mitch Horowitz stays with us, back with uh, more of our discussion on Uncertain Places, right here on Strange Planet. It's time to redefine reality. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. We're back with Mitch Horowitz. So why do some people see UFOs? Some people see them every day. Some people see ghosts, others. I mean, I talk about this stuff. I've had a couple of woo-woo experiences in my life. I've never seen a UFO. I've never seen a ghost, I don't think. Why some and not others? It's a very hot question. And it's a question that has really ignited itself in the minds of people who study ESP, for example. What are the conditions under which ESP occurs? Is there a certain talent that an individual has for it? Is it innate? Is it something you can train for? It seems to me that placebo studies, ESP, uh, mental causation, all have one thing in common, which is that there has to be some skin in the game. There has to be some real passion. Uh, in the lab, for example, that might mean a prevailing atmosphere of comity. In placebo studies, that might mean hopeful uh, expectancy. Uh, in terms of mental causation, that almost always means a sense of emotional persuasion, uh, like an affirmation or a visualization or a prayer for that matter, being emotionally persuasive to the individual. And I think there are different ways that we can cultivate those states of, of the psyche because the mind and the emotions really have to be on the same side. And that's not always an easy thing to do. In fact, that is one of the most difficult conundrums of human nature. We have a wish, for example, I want to stop 
um, experiencing a certain emotional outburst, or I want to stop imbibing a substance that I know is bad for me. And much as we know intellectually that that's a good thing to do, uh, the emotions are often running on their own track and 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 the mind is racing to catch up. So it's a very hot question. And I'm, I'm working with that question very hard in terms of my writing and my own experiments. Now, the UFO question adds a whole other wrinkle because some experiencers have terrifying uh, encounters. Um, these are not things that the individual necessarily looked to cultivate or to go through. So that is a real unknown territory that you're opening up when you ask that question. Why some and not others? I have never experienced uh, a UFO. Uh, last night, I was having dinner actually with my friend Whitley Strieber, who is one of the great literary experiencers of our era. Mm -hmm. And Whitley has these experiences with some frequency. If you put him and me in a room together, temperamentally, you wouldn't find much difference between us. Why does one person have these experiences with frequency and another person like me uh, not, or not even at all? And I don't know the answer to that. It's a remarkable question. And sometimes these things peek into the lives of people and they never happen again. They, they occur with this tremendous palpable vividness. And other times people do have repeat encounters. And I don't know what it is that generates that, a sensitivity, an emotional pitch, a preparedness of some sort. But the question of conditions is a very, very heavy question in parapsychology. And actually, that's part of where the field needs to go right now. As to what these are, UFOs or Bigfoot or or ghosts, I mean, you... Um... I think you do, you go a long way into you know offering a very um, plausible explanation, and it has to you go all the way back to you know the early work in particle labs like eighty years ago, and the um, you know some the, the behavior of particles when they are being measured and observed. Can you uh, unpack that for us? Sure. I mean the the mystery of quantum physics is that no one can test the data. And yet we have these fierce arguments over the implications of the data and the applications of the data. So in a particle lab, and this has been true as you were referencing for 80, 90 years, particles exist in a state of so-called superposition or a wave state until a measurement is taken, at which point they're localized to a single place. And this conundrum raises huge questions about the nature of reality there's a perceptual quality to what's actual and real in the particle lab, whether it's a sentient observer taking a measurement or whether it's an automatized device taking that measurement. Until a measurement is taken, reality doesn't exist, strictly speaking, strictly speaking. So what does that mean in terms of the individual psyche? What does that mean in terms of the UFO thesis? Um, I'm making a bit of a leap here, but there is connectedness. Now, <clears throat> it's often said that particles might behave according to their own laws, that what goes on in the particle lab doesn't necessarily reflect what goes on in this macro above ground world. That explanation is starting to fray because, first of all, quantum mechanics and quantum mechanics data are being gathered from larger and larger particles, including hydrogen molecules, for example, which can pass through uh, solid surfaces. And again, 
it's violative of our normal sense of how matter is supposed to behave. But under certain conditions, matter will behave in very, very strange ways. So here we are seated on all of this data pertaining to UFOs, UAPs, and we're asking ourselves, what is this stuff? Well, there's the rejectionist thesis. We're all just imagining things or it's a fly speck on the lens. Okay, we have that. Then there's the thesis that it's some sort of unknown technology. Well, you know, that may be true in a certain number of cases, but it, it certainly does not cover all the bases by any remote stretch. And then you have the more traditional UFO thesis that, okay, is this ET uh, oriented? And the argument over that tends to be ET versus interdimensional. I favor the interdimensional argument because we already have we already have a compelling logical need for interdimensionality coming out of quantum data because you have particles existing in a state of infinitude where everything literally is going on at once. That's not just a colloquialism, that's the way it is. And only when measurement occurs does that everything, that state of superposition, infinitude, collapse and localize into an object that we can understand and measure. It seems to me that we as a human community at this point have got a better developed set of theories around interdimensionality than we do around what it would take for spacecraft, let's say, to travel these unfathomable distances. Conceptually, we have ideas like cosmic wormholes where you introduce some exotic matter into space-time and suddenly you can pass through it, basically. And then you have theories like string, string theory, hmm. where every object that exists is on these bands of undulating strings and sometimes something going on in an intersection of time or dimension that we don't necessarily witness is affecting what's going on in our own. Hence, you have objects mirroring one another, both on the micro and the macro scale at a distance, what Einstein somewhat derisively referred to as spooky action at a distance. Now, these are all just concepts of reality. They're not, <clears throat> they're not reality itself. But I do think our concepts are better developed with respect to interdimensionality than they are to, uh, I'll say, extraterrestriality, only to the extent of traveling these unfathomable distances. And it doesn't mean that it's an either or, by the way. I mean, that's a kind of trope that we in the West get into thinking in, that we find we're we always looking for a magic bullet. Well, you're either in the interdimensionality camp or the ET camp. I, I don't like to think I'm in either camp. I just think the interdimensional argument is perhaps better developed at this point, right. but there could be a multitude of things going on. Well, if we are particles, um, what does that say then about us as, are we then not also infinite fields of potentiality and non-local? Non yeah, you just put it beautifully. We are particles on the cosmic scale. What else are we? You know, you pan the camera back, so to speak, and you pan it back and you pan it back. What are planets? What are human beings? What is our reality? Which is why we can't just say, oh, that just happens on the particle level. Well, so does my life. So does your life. So that's a wonderful point. Yeah. What does that say about death? That is heavy. Now, there's a researcher at Wake Forest University uh, who I talk about in Daydream Believer, and he makes a very eloquent case that death is 
perceptual. And it's a logical imperative in his argument in the sense that everything is perceptual. The founders of quantum mechanics, which is world-class science, were all perceptualists in nature. They believed that human awareness or what we call consciousness, that great undefined kingdom called consciousness, determines experience. And if you follow that to its logical extent, you have to start asking questions about the actuality of death itself. This starts to touch upon the near-death experience question, the extra-physical survival question. That's why all these conversations seem to be converging. Are we all just Schrodinger cats? Yes, I believe we are. Um, you know, Schrodinger theorized in a thought experiment that you would have to account for a dead alive cat if you allowed for the acceptance of quantum data, because everything is everywhere at once. And these multitudinous or infinite outcomes have to be understood as actual, even if we don't experience them. And it can seem difficult for people because it violates all common observation. There's just one Richard there. There's one Mitch here. It's uh, you know 7.15 here in New York City, Eastern time. Sure, we need those coordinates to navigate through life, but is that the ultimate truth? Everything that we've learned about the world up to this point tells us it's just conceptual. It's not ultimate. Mitch, what a pleasure. It's uh, everything and everyone all at once, and it's all right here. Uncertain Places, Essays on uh, Occult and Outsider Experiences. What a great pleasure meeting you. I hope we can speak again. Likewise, I'd be delighted. Really enjoyed it. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Subscribe at strangeplanetpodcast.com.